You're listening to The Perth Property Show, Australia's only weekly property podcast by West Australian experts for West Australian listeners. Catch your latest episode every Monday at 7am. Good morning, everyone. Welcome to The Perth Property Show. My name is Trent Fleskins, your host. As always, this week, we have another huge hitter in the industry. It's one I probably should have got into the studio a good 12 months ago, but now is still a very pertinent time. We have John Jellovis, Executive Director of the Master Builders Association in the room today. What an exciting episode this is for me and what an interesting time it is to have the top dog in the building industry come in. Matt, you're an advocate for a lot of people in in a lot of precarious times right now. John, welcome. Yeah, thanks, Trent. Really great to be with you, mate. Tell you what, your job has not been easy the last three years, has it? No, it hasn't. I was only sort of speaking to uh, uh, to the media recently about challenges that we've been facing, and uh, and through everything right at the start of the the COVID pandemic, uh, I never thought that I'd be having conversations with our members around uh, around medical procedures such as vaccinations. So mm. it's been a, a whirlwind period for the industry since the the Delta variant impacted on the industry back in the early part of 2020, and since then our, our focus has really been trying to keep the industry operational, which we've been extremely successful in doing. But of course, no one expected the issues that we've seen recently with the, the massive levels of cost escalation and challenges around trade supply and uh, and trade pricing. So it's been, a, it's been a tough time for the industry for sure. Look, you bring up a lot of issues there and we'll go over them all today. But I, I, in, a, in a way, as executive director, you sign up for everything, right? But in another way, you sort of don't sign up for leading your industry through a pandemic, do you? No, no, you don't. It was probably one of the, the last thing I thought that I would be actually doing. Doing. And I know the term unprecedented has been used a hell of a lot in recent times, but but again, I, I never thought I'd be, I guess, advocating around some of the things that we have been. And, and, and I think a, a lot of credit goes to a, a lot of people within our industry, how they've been able to remain operational and keep their staff employed and, and keep going. But also the people that are involved from the medical side and the hospitals, and everyone's been involved in the process, should, I guess, um, t- you know, should tip their hat to them because they've been really those frontline workers have done such a great job, but it's been a tough time. At the end of the day, you guys are not trained for this. You have not got... I'm sure as part of being an executive director, you were not trained to manage your industry through a pandemic to deal with all these health sides of things, the policy that comes out. I think the industry did very, very well, especially in Western Australia, to be able to just kick on. And would it be fair to say you guys had a bit of a hall pass just to get on with it because we needed someone working in the state at the time? Well, I think you're right. We're in the in our 125th year as an association. You know, we were established in 1898. And during that time, we'd seen a couple of world wars that we'd been through. And this pandemic sort of, without doubt, came out of, out of left field. And, and I guess in many cases, the challenges have come you know, thick and fast uh, for the industry since that ha- that happened. So, but we've been resilient enough to, to get through that period. But I think when it did happen at the start of the pandemic, the display homes were effectively shut down and we were we were coming out of probably one of the worst periods in the state's housing history because we'd gone from a housing boom of in 2014 of about 32,000 commencements and we were sitting around about the 15,000 mm. at 2019, 2020. And then when the display homes were shut down, there was real concern at the time around what does that pipeline of work look like? And you could probably put a circle around November, December to say we're effectively going to run out of work. And I think that's really where the state government understood the the contribution that the building construction industry makes to the state economy, uh, along with the mining sector. And at the time, the feedback we'd got that they wanted to keep the the construction industry operational. Uh, of course, we had to work within the COVID nineteen protocols. And uh, and the, it's not not easy though, is it? At the it end of the day, I'm easy. imagining you've no. got most people on site. They're not following the same rules people are following in an office. They're sort of just getting on with it. They're outside. They're yep. carrying a lot of dangerous equipment. 
how many of these guys are rolling around with masks all day, surely? Oh, it was know? very difficult at the time because there were, well, the, the government was looking to introduce fines and penalties for people that weren't complying. Yeah. Uh, an example was uh, the collection of vaccination certificates was, was another one that we had to work with the government on to say, well, it's not really in many cases very difficult for, for a head contractor to, to collect everybody's vaccination certificate. So there are, there are a lot of challenges. All social distancing, right? Absolutely. Steve, I need you to help me carry this fridge. That's right. How do you social distance in that yeah. situation? Uh, the know? issues around mask wearing in the heat, yeah. of, you know, in the height of summer. So, we, look, without doubt, there are loads of challenges and, and hygiene, cleanliness on sites, but also you've got your normal site safety that needed to be managed, cleaning out crib rooms and site sheds and all those areas needed to be managed. And as you mentioned, social distancing. So, the, the ability of the industry to respond the way they did was amazing, considering the nature of, of the industry. Mm. And credit goes to a lot of our members that worked really hard during that time to remain operational, but also continue to build homes, continue to build infrastructure that the government needed, um, particularly the Capital Works Program that was pretty significant at the time. So it was a a desire of the government to keep the industry operational because it's a 30 billion dollar sector employs 10 percent of the state's workforce mm. a majority of apprentices for every dollar invested there's a three dollar multiplier so it was really keeping people in jobs uh, sustaining the state economy and making sure that the state continued to be not just uh well, operational o- operational yeah. but also keep the economy running and not just the state economy the metro economy the local economy regional and it's not just the builder that's contributing it's the the trade contractor it's the supply the ancillary um, Everywhere down the value chain. From the tradie buying the pie and the chop milk on the way to work, everyone benefits from a strong building and building well, construction industry. The settlements industry does, the mortgage broking industry does, the sales industry does. Everyone involved in property benefits from construction. That's right. And I think that's really exactly what the state government were trying to do. And, and I guess that very much the mining sector is a, a big economic contributor to the state, but many to a degree that the construction industry can sometimes fly under the radar. Well, it's the a construction industry is actually bigger when you think about the people employed. Let's talk about you for a minute, John. We've got so much to consume and so much to talk about in the construction industry, but I want to spend five or 10 minutes talking about you just like we do with a lot of our leaders because one day someone will be you and I'd like them to have that confidence of how they can get there and the fact they can as well. You've spent five years with the NBA. Mm. You spent six with the HIA before that in the same role, essentially. Can you give us a little bit of a story of what it was like for John Jellivis, 18-year-old kid coming out of school that pathway to where you are today? I guess in many ways, I, I, was, I was probably born to, to be involved in the building industry. You know, I, I love the industry. In the family? You know, yeah, yeah. my father worked for Bunnings Forest Products then as a major accounts executive looking after a lot of the volume builders through the 70s and 80s. So a lot of our conversations around the dining room table were about were about builders and what was going on in the industry. And, and timber was a massive part of the industry well, very much so at the time. And, today, and right? more so today. So, uh, and probably we're using probably more pine back, back in those days, more carrying Jarrah. I guess my, my initial sort of state as I left high school was to work for Bunnings, uh, Bunnings Forest Products uh, on Adelaide Terrace originally and then worked at Bunnings Forest Products in the trade side. I was pulling roof orders in the carry yard at Bunnings and did that for, for a while and, and then went on the road for Bunnings, uh, you know, working with uh, a lot of the furniture, furniture manufacturers. But I play cricket, so I went to England for about 12 months as an overseas amateur for, for a club over there and I played cricket for Scarborough Career Club here for many years. And so that was a, a bit of a break. And then I came back working for for Bunnings again when I returned in the 
early part of the 1990s and it was still in my blood. And then I was lucky enough to take on a role with CSR, a brand called Formica that was pretty strong at the time, which is Laminex, and moved to Melbourne and the Laminex acquired the Formica brand then. And so was with Laminex for for close to 15 years in a range of different roles. And And, and for everyone listening, that product is essentially everything that you get from your cupboard doors, a lot of your bench tops, Mm. that's all Laminex. Well, now they've got a strong product with engineered stone and and, uh, and a lot of decorative surfaces. So the the Laminex brand's an iconic brand within within the country. So it was great to work there. And and then when I came back in the early part of 2003, I got involved with the Housing Industry Association um, on their regional executive committee. And then uh, then I served as president for about a year or so and then became the executive director in around 2011. Great organisation and and it was a real pleasure to lead Housing Industry Association and and the members there, uh, particularly focused around a lot of the the challenges that were were evident at the time. And then the the move to MBA came, uh, the Master Builders Association came in the in 2018, and and that was an opportunity to to work not just in the residential space but also the commercial building space, which which in many cases are, are a little bit different. More but, aligned to your background as well. Well, yeah, a bit of both. I mean, what we're finding is a lot of the the issues tend to tend to be a little bit merging, but the commercial construction industry deals with a range of different issues a little bit different to specifically around housing. Uh, the commercial construction deals heavily in industrial relations space and it's certainly a different model that's dealing with business to business yeah. as opposed to the, the housing sector which deals in B2C. B2C. Yeah. But how is your day-to-day job different between, well firstly if I can ask, what is your day-to-day job? What does it look like these days? Is it a lot of advocacy? Is it a lot of meeting people and, and learning and then consuming and passing that on to government? Uh, how was it different this five years versus the five years before at HIA? Oh well, I think when you're factoring COVID, it's been uh, it's been intense. I mean, you're you're really working just about every day of the week. In a lot of cases, through the COVID pandemic, the the government were making a lot of announcements over the weekend, particularly with the stimulus announcement. The lockdown almost seemed to be every weekend. Um, the premier was making an announcement, so we'd be working the team, the master builders team, be working with um, with myself and and the premier staff and and ministers and others to try and get the the message out to our members about what those changes meant for the industry and. And to make sure that we were getting that information to them in, in the quickest period of time so they could make decisions. I mean, the whole concept of the lockdown was and was how it all occurred on a Sunday, but we had to get information to the members Sunday night to make sure they knew they could be on site operating mm. on Monday because it was all new territory for everyone. So a lot of um, a lot of my time is spent working with the members, um, with our board and our councils and our committees to make sure our policy works right, then working with the government to uh, to ensure that the, their, our voice is heard from an industry perspective and the policies they're developing would work for the industry. So uh, a lot of time spent um, there, a lot of time spent working with with the members behind the scenes and also running the operations of master builders. So we have a range of different, what we effectively call um, service units to our to our members. Uh, we have an online eDocs platform for contracts. Uh, we have a large events and awards program that we, we roll out. We have master builders insurance brokers where members uh, engage with master builders for their insurance services. We're a registered a training organisation, so we deliver industry-based training for the industry. So there's a, a lot more than advocacy. There's, there's a lot more than advocacy. We've got, I guess, the commercial side of Master Builders, which is very much as a not-for-profit and in many ways supporting our members with services to make sure they can operate.
operate effectively and they get the support they need. The advocacy side is really important, particularly for the small to medium members who need to have a voice to make sure that their voice is heard around a range of different areas. Uh, the vaccine mandate was, was one example of that. The support that we provide them is absolutely crucial. They're probably the two areas. Governance is really critical for the association. So working with our board and our councils to make sure we're working in line with our constitution and, and we're operating effectively as an association. So there's a, there's a range of different elements to the role, but it's a role that never sleeps because you're, you're always available for the media. You know, we've seen in recent times a lot of articles in the West and uh, appearances on commercial television, radio, responding where we need to and where we can to issues that are affecting the industry. So it's a constant, it's a, it's a role that never stops. Well, let's segue into those mm. issues. And maybe I can, we can talk chronologically about this. So I remember having a conversation in mid-2020, just after the building grants had, had been announced with Cameron Laid, who was the general manager of Dale Alcock's residential back then. He's obviously yep. moved on since then, but I remember sitting down with him and chatting about what was going on. And, and he said, Trent, to be frank, we were definitely on a recovery path before these grants came in, despite mm. COVID. Yes. We were picking up quite well. The industry was looking positive going forward. We really didn't need both grants at the same time. And this has really started to choke us. That was back in 2020. Mm. And I wrote an article on the West back then talking about, was I think it was in July, forecasting and discussing that this industry does not have the admin staff, the contract space, the drafties, and then the tradies to do all of this work. And what's going to happen is prices, and, and prices hadn't risen at that point yet, mm. but the 40 to 60 grand being thrown at people at the time will be more than consumed by price rises. And lo and behold, that is exactly what has happened. So that those grants have essentially been totally eradicated by uh, price rises, some of which that are global factors, but a lot of which that are local factors as well. Did you get that feeling yourself at the time? Were you consulted by Mark McGowan and his team at the time? Were you excited about having a state grant as well? And regardless of whether you were or weren't, looking back, was it a good idea? This has sort of gone around in my mind a long period of time for a long period of time now around Poison where, where, we are, where we are now. I think when I look back to that period of time in the early part of 2020, I mentioned before we were at 32,000 housing commencements in two, around 2014. So we'd come off a, the largest construction, was a mining and construction boom. Mm. It, was a, it was a combination. And, you know, 32,000 is the highest in the history of what we've, since we've been collecting the data. But then from 2014 leading into 2019, the market had come off by over 60%. So every single year it was in decline. Builders are on their knees. It was on, yeah, and I think also to remember that the workforce side is a, is a critical aspect to consider here because at the time we had strong overseas migration, strong interstate migration that was supporting the, the 32,000 housing plus the commercial construction that was going on at the time. So we'd seen that come down and as, as you mentioned with Cameron, what, what he was saying was correct is that the market was, was probably starting to recover from that low level and 15,000 housing commencements is, is extremely extremely low. I mean, our long run average is about 20,000. Mm. So to be at 15 is- We're already is, in a deficit. It, we're yeah. terrible. I would say yeah. soaking up a lot of the oversupply at the same time. Yeah, yeah. The green shoots were there in the early part of 2020. But then when COVID hit, and you, you remember back then what was going on with just something like toilet paper on, on supermarket shelves. I mean, there was pandemonium at the time. No one knew 
No one knew what the COVID-19 pandemic was going to hold. No one knew where it was going to end. And I think people were starting to panic buy. And I remember back at the time, there was a lot of nervousness. So we were, you know, we were reporting every day. Um, the Premier was making press conferences every day, updating everybody on the uh, on how many cases that we'd had. So there was a lot of stress, I think, in in, in the community, uh, naturally. But I think one of the, the key things that happened, if, you've, if you look at it, we were, we were coming off these really low levels, extreme levels of building activity or housing activity and then there was a decision to shut down display homes and that, that's effectively the shop front of the industry it's the yeah. retail part of the industry so you've got your, your lowest levels admittedly there might, might have been some green shoots as as Cameron Port had pointed out to you but then the display homes were shut which means no demand and, and, and no end inside about when display homes would actually open so there's fear so there was fear okay so if you look at, at retailing those builders at the time saying okay well we're in, in three or four months time if there is no further work well then the industry falls the apart, industry falls apart yeah. and uh, the cliff is, is coming so uh, but I think that the, the federal government announcing its home builder scheme first the 25,000 and it was means tested should that have been enough it could have been enough in terms of the when you look at the 25 plus the, the we already had a $10,000 first homeowner grant and stamp duty exemptions for first home buyers obviously there's there's different support mechanisms around banks and and key starter and these other other fundamental um, support mechanisms for first home buyers and we're very much exposed to first home buyers mm. the $20,000 builder bonus was the next one that came and that got announced at the same time and like I said at the time is that that's going to effectively turbocharge the industry which it did because when you add the builder bonus with the home builder bonus and the other elements, it was close to I think close to seventy thousand dollars worth stimulus. of worth of stimulus. That's right. Yeah. I've heard that they didn't even talk to each other. Liberal federal government, Labor state government, one didn't know what the other was doing. Mm. And by the time that the Liberal government had announced theirs, state government was too far mm. along to pull out, regardless of whether they would have wanted to anyway. But that they they didn't actually talk to each other at all and weren't aware that this was going on, mm. and. It all just happened at the same time within, I think, five days of each other, as if it looked like it was coordinated, but it actually wasn't. That scares me a little bit as well. What I felt at the time is that every government around the country, I think around the world, were trying to use construction as a way to prop up their economy. I think that they felt that that construction and certainly mining were the two areas that needed to keep going. If they if those fell apart, so I think there was the best of there was best of intention that the government support those industries they know will help their local economies. Where we're at now, and certainly over the last twelve to eighteen months. I think it was very hard to, no one expected to see the levels of cost escalation, the challenge around global supply chain issues. We even had a wharf strike. We had natural disasters like we saw with Saroja and the Wurrulu bushfires. And so there was a lot happening at the time. We had the war in the Ukraine where we generate, we do get supply of, a, a of, of LVLs, so for, for, roof, for roof timber components. So there was a lot of factors going on. Those global supply chain issues really impacted the industry. Well, they still do. Well, they still do. The other thing to remember, if I go back, Back to 2014 um, that I mentioned around we had strong overseas migration we had strong interstate migration because those states those other states like New South Wales were quiet so we had trades coming over to help with that that construction period where in WA we had the border closure so we had no interstate migration we had no overseas migration either the state should have been should recognize that if you stimulate an industry that much that has got that low of a base of trades mm-hmm. in the first place already being absolutely sucked out by the mining industry at the time as well highest level of apprenticeship cancellations in the state come from the construction mm-hmm. industry too and you've got the borders closed 
where are you going to get the people to do this work? And you can see they didn't recognize that because they've now pushed out the expiry dates of these slab down grants mm. two years longer than they thought it was going to be. And there's probably still going to be some people caught out at, in June this year still not mm. having those slabs down from when they signed December 2020. Mm. How long before they announced it were you guys aware it was going to happen? Were you? I'm assuming you guys at the time were supportive of it. Oh, look, I think at the time, we were certainly at the time when, when the Delta variant hit, we were concerned about the cliff and we were concerned that the industry would run out of work. And builders were telling us, members mm. around the country were telling us that in three or four months' time that, that they were concerned about their pipeline of work. And that's why we were saying to government, something needs to happen to support the industry because we can't afford to have mum and dad builders, and particularly those small to medium businesses, um, wind their business up because there was no work. And, and as I mentioned before, there was a high degree of stress around the country around where the COVID pandemic was going to, was going to end. I think that's really where, where government's uh, mind was at at the time. Uh, so naturally, we, we were concerned around the workforce and the apprentices and, and all those affected for, for the mm. sake of the industry. So look, in, I think in, in hindsight, you know, governments may, may have sort of made different decisions, but what we didn't expect was the challenges around the supply materials, mm. but the cost escalation has been unbelievable. Well, let's talk yeah, about I, the cost escalation. Mm. What would you pin the number at as a percentage now? Is it 40%, 45%, 50% in the residential market? Oh, it's starting to ease a little bit, but I think overall it's around about the 30% when you average it all out. But, but what we've seen is some real critical building materials go up significantly, if you can get it. Site pine is one of the classic examples, where I know we're very much had predominantly been a double brick type of market, mm. but we use pine, roof carpenters use pine, pitch roofs, um, wall Steel frames. Steel's not that much easier to get as well. That's right. But, but we had to, one of the examples of our advocacy was that we, had to call a meeting with the Premier and the Forestry Minister, Dave Kelly, to say we need we need, enough, we need more logs out of the forest yeah. to, to get to West Pine to be able to process what uh, did they say? structural timber. And we were successful. We got another 13,000 tonne of logs out of forest to be able to supply to, to West Pine to produce more timber. But that was that, that were the, the dire... I guess consequences that we're being faced with and where that puts the builder if builders got a roof carpentry team ready to pitch a roof on one day but then the timber was lined up to be the previous day and it couldn't yeah. and it couldn't be delivered for but whatever you're, reason you're couldn't, out get, for weeks. couldn't get the LVLs weeks, months yeah. Yeah. But I saw you, that so many times on site where uh, builders said Matt, yeah, the roof, roofing guys are ready for Wednesday mm. timber's supposed to be arriving on Tuesday timber doesn't arrive on Tuesday maybe it arrives three days later or four weeks later regardless, that roof carpenter's off to the next five jobs before he comes back correct and you're out for three four months as a client waiting because of that small shift whereas back in the day four five years ago even three or four years ago traders would push things left and right a couple of days timber always arrived on time and things would track along with a lot of certainty on time frames oh that's right there's a lot more flexibility in the market yeah and what i've been saying publicly is certainly what's caused a lot of the challenges at the moment for a lot of residential builders and commercial builders um, we'll be talking more residential now but it's it's become a cost and cash flow crunch because as we know there's progress payments along the way for builders and if there's a delay in say getting to to plate height then they yeah. can't get a progress payment if there's a delay for, for whatever reason those that that's the cash flow crunch. They're being hit on, on a many different fronts with the supply materials, the supply of trades, the trade contractor pricing, and then the material pricing. And But those delays uh, impact cash flow. And that's the unprecedented aspect of it. Stimulus or not, the delays in materials, it has been very, very hard for the industry. It's really effectively been the meat and the sandwich because the longer the delays, and that impacts on cash flow and that impacts on those businesses being able to run effectively and efficiently. Well, let's talk about pricing and cash flow. Mm-hmm. 
info a bit more, I think it's pretty obvious to most people that this boom has been a profitless boom. We saw in the newspaper, Dal mm. Alcock, fella's got plenty of money, but he lost $45 million mm. last year in his businesses or mm. in the AVN group. That's not a small amount of money, even mm. for a guy with his pockets. That would therefore be scaled down across every other builder in Perth. I mm. doubt there was a builder in Perth last year who actually turned a profit. That's pretty mm. scary for an industry in the first mm. place. We don't want that. It, whilst we are mm. transactional in the industry, mm. everyone needs to be doing well for that to actually be an industry in the first place. Correct. Think about clients that had signed on in May and just started their build in June, contracts been signed, it's not changing. Those guys finishing a year or so uh, later, maybe a year and a half later, mm. that contract was for 500 grand, meaning they're probably going to cost the builder 400 mm. 420 maybe at the time it actually probably ended up costing the builder more than the contract mm. price so they're losing money just to finish mm. jobs yeah. that's still happening today and you look at a lot of those builders that are now falling over we saw the wa home group mm. i think it was called individual mm. developments mm. new sensations was the first to go he mm. was demonized in the newspaper which is horrible mm. you know, this is a guy who's just trying to get on with work mm. you see hamlin homes this week mm. fall over there's a couple of themes there i want to talk about with you yeah the first one is i think a lot of them bit off more than they could chew at the time you see the big guys firm pindan falling down even clough on a on a commercial level right mm. but another huge theme most of these guys were involved with government work can you explain what's going on there well yeah there's a lot, there's a lot to unpack there uh, and again I, I don't know the individual financial positions of any of those organizations you, you, you've spoken of all of them members of yours I'm sure M- many of them many yeah. of them and I think really what what we've sort of been talking to the government about the concerns we have around a couple of areas uh, particularly around contracts and we've released a building industry reform package with 18 recommendations to government and I'm happy to provide you a copy and if you wanted to to make that available it's in the public domain it's on our master builders website mbawa.com but it talks about a couple of areas that need to be addressed and we want government to lead this process we have been concerned for some time that the balance of risk in procurement has uh, been pushed heavily down towards the head contractor and that head contractor risk is it, it, it may have been able to be to to bear in previous years but but right now it's just not feasible it's not sustainable uh, so what we're saying then is that the, the contracts move away from a standard Australian contracts to more con- standard contracts that have been amended to pass risk down and that's really concerning us when you couple that with procurement approaches of lowest price wins it puts the head contractor in a really precarious position we've been saying to government and I've had meetings with uh, with the premier's office I've met with the previous minister of finance Tony Booty and I've had meetings with the current minister Sue Ellery regarding that and our, as our association has around how do we get the government to lead in a couple of areas making sure that the contracts are ensuring that they're equitable but also procuring on value rather than lowest price and taking into account value around the life cycle of the project rather than uh, a very much a cost-based approach so we want the government to lead on those with some of some of our reforms are are about how do we create a more sustainable industry not just for we've got the, the certainly the the development industry with the head contractor the subcontractors the suppliers the workers everyone across the board will benefit from a sustainable industry we think if it's a effectively a once in a generational opportunity to, to make real reform mm. and we're not the only i guess organization around the country that's calling um, for reforms but this particular reform package we've developed has been done in conjunction with our members our construction council uh, and uh, and it's a, these are these are tangible reforms that we hope will be able to get supported by the government is the big theme moving away from fixed price contracts and having some level of cost plus variable there where the risk downwards 
is the be- of benefit to both parties, but the risk up- upwards is of obligation to both parties as well? Yeah, it is. I think the, one of the big issues that we've seen with, with the industry, housing and commercial construction, has been the cost escalation. And as you heard from me at the start, I've worked on the supply side of the industry. So I know that when you, when you generally talk to a builder about price increases, they're generally either around CPI or there's something particular that's happened where you're asking for an increase and you're justifying those increases as you're going. What we've seen with COVID pandemic and the cost escalation, these have come at a rapid rate of knots and they're double digits. And I'll be getting the invoices from our members, you know, 10%, I see them. They 10%, send them to 10%, 10%, 10%. It's a one-page letter. <laughs> Hi, XYZ. Yeah. Unfortunately, our supply chain has mm. gone up to a level we can't sustain. From the 1st of January, we'll be passing on an increase of 43% for door lintels. Yeah. Kind regards, Steve. Yeah. And you've already signed your mm. fixed price contract four months ago. You haven't procured the lintels yet, but you plan to. Mm. You, you thought it was going to cost you three grand. Now it's going to cost you four and a half. Yeah. Yeah, and, that, and that's what we've been saying right through the pandemic. I mean, we've seen the supply chain continue to increase the prices at a rate of knots. So that's where that, that cost and cash flow crunch I was talking about. So that cash flow delay has been associated with the, the challenge around passing the those or the delays in getting to uh, your progress payments. But the cost side has been significant. Like Pine's gone up well over 100%, close to 200%. Steel, ins- insulation, it's just been one one product and service after the next. And the builders effectively the meat, the sandwich, very difficult to pass those costs on. Well, impossible in Impossible many to pass those yeah. costs on under, under those contracts. So, and what we're saying to government is many cases that we need the cost to be passed on on, on, on maybe even existing government contracts. So, mm. so one of our advocacy sides, Trent, that been been really important and part of what you get back to what, what I do, day to day is constantly on behalf of our members in the government's ear about things that they need to do to help the industry. And one prior to the state budget that was announced last year was we put 17 recommendations to government in, in correspondence about what needs to happen. One of them in particular was uh, rise and fall clauses of government contracts. And, and we're pleased to say that they've, they've supported that. Well, with they these need government. to. Well, they have to. The other part is they announced a, a $30 million stabilisation package. That stabilisation package allows for commercial builders that have done projects within a period of time to be able to apply to the government for cost escalation relief. Cost recovery. Cost recovery. Yeah. So that $30 million was really important, as much as we'd like to see more in that bucket. That was, the, I guess, the start of that process where some of those commercial builders and, and work, doing work for the government, where they could go back and say, if they could demonstrate the cost escalation and present that to government, that there would be consideration to give them cost relief, and how's which it is going? critical. I think at the moment, we would like to see a shorter period of time in, in from application to response. Yeah. And we don't think that at this stage, it, we, we think it could go a little bit better than where, where it's going. We just think that um, the feedback we're getting from members is that the process could be sped up in many ways. So it's a critical aspect of our advocacy. Do you think a few of these builders that went under, if they'd received that support in a timely manner, would not have gone under? Again, most of them... It would have certainly... I think it would have certainly helped. I think it would have certainly helped, yeah. Yeah. Uh, A lot of these guys are residential slash commercial builders with involvement with a couple of big projects with the government, which has been the big pinch that has sent them under from a cash flow point of view because the government, even with their $5 billion surplus, Mm. was un willing 
to move. Even when Blind Freddy could, could see that these builders were not only not making a dollar, but were actually losing money just finishing these projects. Yeah, and that's really what we're trying to communicate to government at the time is that the industry needs help, the industry needs it needs support because, again, I use the term, I know it's been bloody overused, but it, it was just completely unpre- unprecedented how to respond and react in these. And as it's placed a, enormous pressure on our builder members, our subcontractors. In many cases, some builders are, are subcontracting to uh, head contractors. So it's, it's it affects the whole supply chain. It affects lives, livelihoods. And, and the mental health side is a is one we haven't touched on. But oh. Oh, but yeah. but it, it's it, there's been issues right around the country with the the, the mental health of our industry. All the anxiety it, of a lot of these yeah. builders and subcontractors, knowing that they're one week away or two weeks away from yeah. bankruptcy at, at any point in time, that's not a position any business owner wants to be in. The other side of the coin is financing. It's all yeah. well and good to have the developer, yeah. state government or private, and the builder agree, yeah. or let's do a cost plus arrangement. Or yeah. my suggestion would be a cost plus arrangement with a contingency cap on the upside, where you benefit from the downside, but at least there's fat there on the upside so if we can prove it those costs get passed on to a limit yeah but we can blame the government for this but really the key engineers of this lack of flexibility in the commercial space of these arrangements have been the big four banks Mm. they don't work with cost plus arrangements they enforce fixed price contracts they are the architects if you really look at it the banks are the architects of this risk yeah, well, again, Trent, I think that's really the the part of our advocacy. So when we, you know, when we're talking to government, we're talking to banks, we're talking to all the stakeholders, the development industry, the the property council, we're meeting with soon, the architects associations, we've met with them, even the the CFMEU. We'll, we we've talked to anyone that can help us with supporting these reforms because they they're, they're going to help everybody. I agree with you. The finance side is critical to this process. Banks have to be on board. We'll be meeting with them shortly. When you talk about procurement models, there's a range of different models that. Could could be considered there's early contract and involvement there's construction management contracts uh, and as you mentioned cost plus so there's a, there's a range of different contracting models that that could be considered but the one that, that the process at the moment is a fixed price contract very much procurement is based on price rather than value it's a, a race to the bottom and we've got to try and get out of that cycle the industry has to be sustainable in the long term for everyone it is just as important as some of the the elements that the government have introduced about how to keep the industry operational but it has to be operational but it has to be sustainable mm. apprentices is a, is a massive part of we, we train a lot of apprentices do we, we have enough apprentices going through there's been a significant increase in, in apprenticeship training the challenge is keeping them why? And getting them Is it into the mining a, industry that's cannibalizing it. Yeah, the mining industry plays a pretty significant role. Where we're lucky now that the mining industry is contributing to the construction training fund levy, which is important. And that levy goes to subsidising apprenticeship costs and uh, and training within our industry. Previously, the the mining sector had an exemption. They're getting that's, the freebies. That's been removed now, yeah. so that's that's good. And they're there. You guys are training them, and then they were taking them. Uh, yeah, that's right. And yeah. I think that we're pleased that that's occurred. But still, it's probably a relationship there. It's a little bit tense because you sit across the table from each other and you know yeah. they're stealing your guys. Well, we all need workers. I mean, that's when, it, when there's generally a construction boom, there's, a, there's generally a mining boom like we saw in 2014. And you know everyone's trying to put their best foot forward and run their, their operations. And that's really where the challenge we've had around the... I can understand, particularly from a public health perspective, around the hard border. And I think that there was a lot of debate around that. But what that did effectively in cases that we didn't have then the overseas migration, we didn't have the interstate migrations, and we're working off that low base of 15,000 starts in 2019. So when the market when it peaked almost 12 months later we're still working with the trade base of 15,000 and the workforce of 15,000 dwellings that makes sense so that was part of that challenge so what's being done 
to fix that problem of our trade base in addition to securing a larger trade base from overseas into state? Yeah, well, fast-tracking visa, visas are critical. Is so, that happening? Yeah, that's happening, right? So we want to see the overseas migration improve. But one of the challenges, as you can see, in your operation is is where we're seeing with vacancy rates and we're seeing with housing supply. We don't have enough housing supply and if we want to reach the 200,000 homes across the country that we need to house the population, WA needs to be contributing at least 20,000 of that now forecast this year is going to be probably sitting around the 15 to 16,000. Well, well, yeah, we're not building yeah. enough and we don't have enough people to even build that. Here's a cool stat for yeah. you. I don't even know if you've checked this before. Mm-hmm. In December 2022, we commenced about 990 houses. Yeah. In December 1983, so 40 years ago, we commenced about 1,025. So 40 years ago, mm-hmm. in the same month, we commenced more houses than we did two months ago. And we're struggling to even get those started. Yeah. What is going on with the trade base in Western Australia? We clearly have not increased our mm. trade base. Forty years ago, we had half the population. Yeah, I think there's a there's a lot of factors we've, we've got to get right. We need title land supply. I think that's critical. The building and planning approvals process needs to be efficient so we can make sure approvals go through smoothly. We need to have the trade base to be able to construct the homes that we need to efficiently. Things will have to be aligned to be able to build the homes that we need to build. But we need to do it sustainably. We need to do it so builders have to be profitable, tradies have to be profitable, workers have to be paid. So the whole apprentices need to be retained. And the mental health side of our industry needs to be sustainable too. So yes, we've got to do all those things, but we've got to do it in a sustainable way. And get back to the issues with apprentices. Most apprentices in the construction industry will will probably not continue their apprenticeship in the the first or maybe second year. So there's a range of factors, whether the, the, the work's not what they expected or the relationship with the host isn't where that needs to be but we need uh, an industry that's going to help retain our apprentices and retain our, our our contractors and workers in the sector and we need to be a more diverse industry we need to attract more more women into our industry we've got to well can we talk you know, about that for yep. a second two and a half percent of the construction industry are women in the same way that the mining industry keeps stealing our people mm. can't we look into the predominantly female industries and look to try and grab a whole bunch of females to work there's yeah. there's nothing a male bricklayer can do that a female couldn't do or a male sparky why can't we attract more is it simply that females have more of a proclivity to people than things and it's just really hard to get them interested in our sort of work yeah. and it's not just i think it's not just females but it's also making sure our diversity is there it's our industry diversity it's a but, but i think that's a huge untapped market yeah. of people right we're thinking about mm-hmm. well look we have a critical undersupply mm-hmm. of skilled trades mm-hmm. Why aren't we advertising to the admin industry, the hairdressing industry, the nursing industry, God forbid? Mm. All these industries that that are predominantly female where they would do just as good, if not better, a job than a whole bunch of trades we've got in the moment. Yeah, and that's the role of the construction training fund. So, and so, they'd be paid yeah, better. Absolutely. So, so, so Tiffany Allen's the CEO of the construction training fund. We have a, a board member that sits on that on that fund that helps, I guess, provide input into the fund. But they do a great job in promoting the construction industry, and that's really effective their their role. They've got programs that relate to uh, the female football leagues and others. So they're out there really promoting the the industry extremely well and hard. There's a construction future centre in Belmont that they get kids. In to, to show them the industry so that's being done extremely well and one of our challenges not just is to is uh 
well, we've got uh, really good apprenticeship commencements. Our challenge is around how do we keep them, and that's where I, where I get back to sustainability. In terms of the women's side, the, we have, we have a, a program called Women Building Australia. Master Builders has had a program since 2009. There's a mentoring program as well, and at the moment we've got 18.1% uh, of females in the construction industry, but they're very much around professional roles. We'd like to see that increase in the trade base, which I think is close to about 1%. So I think you're spot on in terms of what you're saying. We need to attract uh, women into our industry, but we need an industry that's going to attract everyone that wants to be part of a, a diverse sector, and we need to put our best foot forward in there as an industry. And that's really why we're talking about sustainability, these reforms, better mental health. I sit on the Mates in Construction board that's a, a key leader in, in mental health within the construction industry, and they do a, an amazing job to help our workers within our sector. Uh, we need good mental health, we need diversity, but we need a, a sustainable industry going forward. Let's talk about going forward. Will the price for construction of a residential house in 2023 be higher this year or lower this year than last year? It could be similar, if mm. not if not a bit lower, because I think prices are starting to ease a little bit. Okay, where are they starting these? At the front end, so bricklaying rates that were at one stage close to 350 a brick. As the market's softening, that front end of the housing market is, starting to, is starting to ease. Yeah. So some of those trade rates are starting to come back. As we're completing the stimulus work, now that kicked off in 2020 we're starting to see the the front end at the, at the start there was concrete as bricklayers those wet trades were in high demand but now we're in almost those finishing trades areas we're seeing roof carpentry rates go up a little bit more obviously you know a roof lot sheeting. more um so plumbing. She, sheeting plumbing yeah. those areas but those trades at the start of that building cycle are starting to normalize as the market starts to come off and that and the the master builders forecasts uh, that we're seeing that, that we've announced just recently is certainly a correction back to, to lower levels this year but nowhere but near the, where they were in 2019 maybe a little bit higher well i know I, I what i thought so i mean back in 2019 i know builders were paying 85 cents a brick right so you said it got up to 350 for mm. I'm, I'm assuming face brick mm. surely we're not seeing brick prices go back to 85 cents no no that's what i'm saying i don't think they'll go back to pre-covid levels or even to those levels i don't think they'll get back there they're at um, 190 i heard already yeah and it all depends on the you look back also the 350 a brick in that there was a vaccine mandate in as well so all bricklayers uh, effectively according to the law had to be vaccinated so that would have taken a lot of so supp- right exactly so, so you could see how the constraints in the industry and what the industry was dealing with but there's also a lot of supply factors here that we can't control and that have nothing to do mm. at all with locals as you said timber steel these inputs are far more expensive now because of factors we can't control shipping the war in the in ukraine that's not going away anytime soon no no it's not and you look at every single state including wa was was extremely busy with the home builder program so everybody needed supply from south australia to Tasmania to Victoria, right across the board, everybody was busy. So the supply chain of timber, everyone was crying out for timber. Everyone was crying out for certain building, critical building materials. But WA in particular, we do rely on the interstate and overseas supply chains. There's not a lot that's manufactured within Western Australia. Timber is one, obviously through West Pine in WA, and Wesbeam, who are a LVL producer, and they supply laminated veneer lumber right across the country and into WA. But there's not too many local manufacturing components to, to the states. So we were relying heavily on state and national and, and overseas supply chains to supply the industry. You represent a lot of apartment developers. Mm. They haven't started an apartment in over seven months now. 
across the whole state mm. what's going on. The challenge there is a lot of the feasibilities aren't stacking up. There's certainly concerns around... So you should, can have to develop a lead and not build a lead? Yeah, well, I think what you find is also the builders in particular are very careful about engaging in contracts. It gets back to the, the start of what we were talking about, yeah. sustainable contracting, making sure that the contract's fair, there's a fair share of risk, and the procurement is around value rather than price. Where I think builders now, particularly commercial builders, are very much looking at the contracts really carefully to decide what they're going to engage in and not because if there's too much risk... Yeah, one job could kill them. One job with, with um, not just cost escalation, but also liquidated damages. So it's a, it's a very tenuous situation now. And I think that the development industry and also the, the government as the lead developer need to really think hard about the type of contracts they're using and their procurement methodologies and work with the industry. I mean, the builders want to build. Cool. Uh, so, There's a question uh, there for uh, you. Will we see an apartment commencement? before June 30? That's a good question. Hard to I mean, answer. Hard to answer. I and mean, that's I, scary, isn't it? It is. I mean, we, but with the, the one thing you're right, Trent, we need housing supply. Yeah. We need development. Uh, if we're going to talk about overseas migration, we need housing. But we also need affordable housing. Mm. We need social housing. We need community housing. We need people um, to build that housing. That's right. And that's, that's part of the challenge that, that we've got one of the biggest investments in social housing that you know, Minister John Carey's been really trying to get up and running. There's been a commitment to, to, to social housing. One of the challenges has been, of course, is getting the build to be able to do it. And I mentioned the natural disasters. I mean, that can't be overlooked either because in WA, we've seen the Wurrulu bushfires, we've seen Cyclone Saroja, we've seen Cyclone Ellie. All these uh, communities have been devastated, but the industry is then being asked to engage to have be part of the rebuild. And I've got members of mine that are they're in Perth or even in Geraldton going up to help with Cyclone Ellie rebuild. We've been helping with Wurrulu, we've been helping with, with Saroja, with asbestos removal in those regions. So we're, the industry's, doing, the industry's doing, doing its work and it's trying trying to help not just the consumer community, but it's also help, trying to help regional communities rebuild after these disasters. And getting back to, say, say the housing side, government is really doing its best to try and in- increase social housing, but the industry has to be able to respond to that. And, and many builders have been obviously tied up doing the work since the stimulus was introduced, but also that they want to be part of that social housing rebuild, that community housing construction program. But I think also that the government need to be considerate in terms of the contracts that they offer and making sure that those cost escalation clauses are there, that the risk is shared, and they appreciate that we're still in effectively a pandemic in many ways even though we're starting to ease, obviously. But we're still dealing with many of the issues. And I think they're, from a building industry perspective, the fair apportionment of risk needs to be there going forward, whether there's COVID or not. Mm. I think that's what's, what's certainly spelled out for the industry is that they have to be very careful around contracting to make sure that the risk is there and their business is protected. When you look at land sales in Western mm. Australia, in January of this year, we had just 22 land sales. That's something that makes me nervous when you compare it to a long run average of 500 sales per month. 22 were it. Mm. And back when the building grant was announced, it was over a thousand in Mm. that month. So Mm. obviously a lot of that demand has been vacuumed forward. But we're now at a point, we we spoke about cash flow, where a lot of the builds that these builders are finishing, all Mm. of them are costing the builder. So that last Mm. progress payment that comes Mm. in, doesn't even come close to paying for the costs, right? So all of them are now banking losses on all Mm. of these builds. Mm. Most of the time, that in nearly a Ponzi scheme, circumstance gets made up for by the next deposit that comes in for the next build just to keep the cash flow going. But when there's no deposits coming in for the next build because we've only had 22 land sales in in one month, the cash flow really starts to dry up. 
Do you think we've seen the last of builder collapses or any others you think are going to start falling over? Oh, well, look, I'm really concerned for the for the industry and what it's had to endure. And clearly said previously that it's uh, you know the industry's been a the meat and the sandwich in this. Um, so, so the and the industry has been under stress for the last two years as it's tried to remain operational. So, so yeah, we're concerned about what the what the, the future might hold. Um, so you know, there might be some uh, more. Well, I, I hope not, Trent. I, mm. I really do. And, and all we're doing is we're, we're doing our best to try and work with the government to try and get them to consider things that might help support the industry, uh, some sort of stabilisation support to help these builders that are, have just done their best to try and keep going. And you mentioned the community housing, the social housing side. Anything the state government do on those contracts, existing contracts to help, would go a long way to helping those builders get through the next period of time. Mm-hmm. Um, we have conversations with our members trying to support them you know, continually about what, what can we do to help them. And uh, and, I, and I know that there's there's stress in the market, not just you know from a, a metro perspective, but in regional Western Australia. So so being part of the association is being part of that network that we we help those members get through this that period. But but yeah, I think when you've seen the the levels of cost escalation and you've seen the challenge around supply chain. I guess if we can just get through the next period of time and get a lot of that work completed, the, we hope that the future is a, is a lot brighter for y- in years to come. Uh, but that's that's the challenge that we've got ahead of us. If I was Mark McGowan mm. and you had five minutes with me mm. right now, what would the one message you want to give him be? I'd be saying to Mark, as we've said previously, is the building construction industry is a $30 billion sector and we make such a large contribution to the state economy and training and workers and the the, the, the multiplier effect. So anything that, that, that they can do in state government contracts to lead that process and adopt our 18 recommendations in full uh, and legislate some of them would go a long way to stabilising the industry. And government contracts is for government to work hard to look at ways they can support those builders in those contracts, make sure they can get out sustainably and keep their businesses going because they employ people, they employ West Australians, they employ subcontractors that employ West Australians. They, the supply chain, the multiplier effect, it helps the state, it helps the economy. We're all in this together, so let's try and help each other. That'd be my message. And I think that to the Premier's credit, he has taken on board a lot of our feedback, a lot of our advice as the peak body, and a lot of the things he's introduced have, have helped. One of our initiatives was the the a document that's been released by by the regulator called building a house in challenging times that the consumers can can access that shows the demonstrates issues the industry's been under but also what their rights are and what they can do to help deal with those issues and we'd be also saying to the public to be really kind and sub- try and support as best they can the builder who is the meat and the sandwich to be understanding and respectful we understand it's a challenging time for them but it's also a really challenging time for for the builder and the stress that they're under and as i've said they're the they're the meat and the sandwich and they're doing the best they can under really trying circumstances so it's not easy for anyone john jelovis executive director of the nba thank you so much for your stewardship it's obviously been a really hard job for you in the last few years uh, but i think everyone appreciates your commitment to the role and hopefully uh, in a year's time we're talking about some clean fresh air where uh, prices have dropped a little bit but sustainable enough for trades as well and we've got a lot more confidence consumer confidence in the industry to come back and ask for a new home to be built because right now I think that is the one thing we're lacking is is confidence going forward. Yeah, look, I, I, I couldn't agree with you more. You know, confidence in our industry is critical and I just want to acknowledge you for, for having me on the program and talking about the industry and for any of our members listening, I just want to thank them for their, their ongoing support and, and as the peak body, anybody who wants to be part of Master Builders, please join in the in the fight to help improve our industry. We can't do it on our own and, and we need members to be able to support us in, on that journey. So thank you. Thanks, John.
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Perth Property Show. If you've only just joined the conversation, you can catch up by heading over to our website, perthpropertyshow.com.au, subscribing to the podcast or joining our Facebook page. Don't forget to tune in next Monday at 7am for more expert insights, local analysis and suburb spotlights. Happy hunting!